0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Botox Cosmetic, botulinum Toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you.
1: For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877 Remember
0: to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com. How would you like to look five years younger?
2: Good evening, children of the night. Come on in to this old cabin. It's a pleasant evening, despite being a bit muggy. The Shenandoah does get rather humid this time of year. Come on in and get situated. Have something to drink. Settle in. We'll be hearing from Tony this week as we try to convince your listening ears to motivate your giving hands. Then we'll get on a couple of stories. But
3: first, Tony. Hello, everyone. Yes, it's the boss again. Tony C Smith from the host from Starship Over and, like I say, the boss of Tales to Terrify. I don't know if anyone listened to last week's show, where I kind of put out some hard, brutal facts. And I want to do this kind of probably, you know, four weeks, give it like a kind of little month of, of rallying, trying, raise some funds to make sure Tales to Terrify keeps going. A quick rundown: If you didn't listen to last week's show, we have roughly around about four thousand listeners regular weekly listeners, sometimes going up to kind of 5,000 when it's a big writer comes on with a story. And of that, five people donate to the show and keep it going. And that, that can of happen. Do you know what I mean? We need funds to keep Tales to Terrify going. We need your support. This is the kind of the, the time, the one time when, please, we're asking you know for help. Come and support Tales to Terrify. I've sat down a couple of times now over this kind of my podcasting history with my good wife. And, you know, I guess that's why we kind of survived so long. She's very brutally honest. I cannot keep on funding, you know, these little kind of whims, not whims, but these dreams I have are kind of making these podcasts. They have to survive on its own. Starship over now does that, you know. And like I mentioned last week, you know, I had to kind of kill off a couple of the other shows you know the crime city central and the protecting project pulp they've gone they've they're now you know faded away i don't want that to happen you know i do not want that to happen the tales to terrify steven is just doing a fantastic job with everybody else on the show larry kicked this off do you know what I mean from like i mentioned last last time 20 i think it was 20 or 15 people that first show <laughs> Up to what Stephen's got to do there now, where it's kind of regular, and it's just hitting these high figures. Sometimes it's even overtook. Starship's over. I mean, it's kind of... Like it's a little bit of, kind of a bitter pill to swallow. But it's almost... An, it's a lovely one, because it's like... It's doing great stuff. But... To be honest, it ain't going to last. Do you know what I mean? We need funding for Tales to Terrify. Come over the front of Tales to Terrify website. The front of any, you know, starship, so even the the far-fetched fables. You know, you can kind of sign up from there. Just through PayPal, £2.50, £5, you know what I mean? Just £5 a month, a couple of coffees, do you know what I mean? Just keeps the show going. It pays for the kind of the broadband. It pays for the kind of the websites and the hosting there's all these costs kind of coming in and yeah, we, we do the story, you know, we get the stories for free, you know, the, the kind of kindness, kindness of the, the, the writers and the kindness of the readers. But it's a kind of catch 22 because we're getting bigger and bigger. The costs associated with it are just kind of spiraling and I physically cannot, you know, afford it no more. We have, I said last week, about 10 weeks to go where, if it isn't happening in ten weeks, we're kind of going to have to have some serious kind of unpleasant times ahead for tales to terrify. It is, it will close down. Do you know? What I mean, there's no, there's no question about it. These, these things can't run. You know, goodwill all the time. We need some funding. Do you know what I mean? So please, if you can, that would be fantastic. Just support the show. Through PayPal, do you know what I mean? You wouldn't even see it coming off your kind of your account or whatever like that. Two pound fifty, do you know what I mean? If a few hundred supported the show like that, we would be away galloping out of the, the kind of the stalls every week, bringing your fantastic works. At this minute, I do want to kind of you know put more pressure on Stephen to kind of keep on producing the shows because I know there will be an ending and. I, I don't want that to happen. Stephen certainly doesn't want it to happen, you know. And like I say, when it's Larry's legacy as well, you know, I, do, I, I want them shows up there all the time, but there has to be some support. Do you know what I mean? We can't just have four or five people supporting it, you know, and five thousand listen to it, you know. Please support Tales to Terrify. It's just we're pretty desperate. If that's the, the brutal honest truth, pretty desperate.
2: Thank you once again, Tony. Our first story of the evening will be Harry Shannon's And All the Dead Lie Down. Harry Shannon has been a singer, an actor, an Emmy-nominated songwriter, a recording artist in Europe, a music publisher, a VP of Carol Culp Pictures, you'll remember them from Terminator 2, Total Recall, and let's not forget Rambo, and worked as a freelance music supervisor on films such as Basic Instinct and Universal Soldier. He has an M.A. in psychology and has been a para-professional counselor since 1988. Many of his clients work in the entertainment industry. Although primarily a novelist, Harry has contributed short stories and novellas to a number of genre magazines and anthologies, including the highly praised Dark Delicacies 2, Limbus 2, Brimstone Turnpike, Tales from the Gore Zone, Small Bites, the Journal Stone Double Down series, A Dark and Deadly Valley, and On Deadly Ground, a collection of Western noir co-edited by veteran authors Ed Gorman and Dave Zeltzerman. His definitive collection, A Host of Shadows, is now available on Kindle. Mr. Shannon's novels include the Mick Callahan suspense series, as well as Clan, Demon, Dead and Gone, The Hungry Zombie books, and All the Devils, co-written with Stephen W. Booth, and the well-reviewed thriller The Pressure of Darkness. He won the Tombstone Award for Best Novel with *Clan* and a Dark Scribble from Dark Scribe magazine. His story Night Nurse and fiction collection A Host of Shadows were each nominated for a Stoker Award by the Horror Writers Association. Otto Penzler selected 50 Minutes, co-written with Joe Donnelly of Slake magazine, for inclusion in the Best American Mystery Stories of 2011. Harry scripted the film version of the camp horror novel Dead and Gone, produced and directed by Yossi Sasson, and played a bit part as the sheriff. The film was released on DVD via Lionsgate in 2008. Harry Shannon continues to write fiction and music. He sees clients by appointment only at a discreet office located in Studio City, California. He is married and has one child. And now, Harry Shannon's And All the Dead Lie Down.
4: The large Hollywood motorhome trailer squatted incongruously in a ragged patch of shade, wedged right between the red-streaked thighs of a long crack in the hardpan. This was in a remote part of a destitute county that tiptoed between Texas and Mexico. It was the perfect spot to do a quick rewrite of a western movie, a timeless, shimmering country freckled with scrub brush and gopher holes, ground parched and panting. The huge vehicle itself, on loan from the production company, wasn't half bad either. Maggie had a DVD player, a Nintendo, books, and some video games. And for Pete Collier, Power for his laptop, a reliable air conditioning unit, and a comfortable bed with down pillows. They'd only planned on staying a few days, a week tops. Still, Maggie had just turned ten. She got bored easily. Normally, Pete would not have dragged her along at all, but... Pete stopped typing as something like a breeze moved along the back of his neck and stroked a few hairs erect. He heard an eerie sound, something pressured and tiny, the amplified scream of a field mouse. His stomach flipped over. He spun around in the office chair. Maggie, mute since the death of her mother in their car wreck a few months before, was standing slack-jawed and weak-kneed in the evening heat, pointing at the bookshelf. Poor little angel. She'd been struggling to scream. Sweetie, what is it? What's wrong? Pete rushed to her side, his tired eyes searching the trailer. Maggie held on like a drowning child, little chest heaving. Pete felt tears moisten his shirt. Then he saw what had shocked her and sighed. He knelt down, brushed her blonde hair aside, felt the mournful gaze, searching for answers. We talked about this, Maggie. He was old for a goldfish, you know. Archie had been swimming upside down in the bowl for a couple of days. He'd had time to prepare Maggie, but still, with the death of her mother so fresh in her mind. "'Just like you to do this, Gwen,' Pete thought. "'So I cheated a time or two. Who doesn't? "'But then you dump me for some no-talent TV director who's rude to my kid, "'move to San Diego so I hardly know her anymore, "'rip me off for a fortune, then let the asshole drive drunk on a rainy night.' How much did she see of what happened? Did you bleed out in front of her? Did the poor baby have to watch his brain splatter on the windshield? Or did she just wake up in the back seat afterwards and maybe catch it all under the emergency lights as they pried her squashed family out? Fuck you, Gwen. I hope you're burning in hell. Do you want to bury him? Someone else's voice from another dimension. Pete stuffed his ongoing rage into a mental dumpster, just like we planned. Maggie nodded. Pete kissed her forehead. He covered the fishbowl with his body, scooped the tiny fish out of the water, and dropped it into a waiting sandwich bag. Come on. Outside, the sun was fading, steadily crumbling into darker colors like a widening bruise. Greedy desert air sucked the moisture out of their clothing. Pete grabbed the flashlight and shovel and led Maggie a few yards into the gloom, where they'd already marked the spot with a bouquet of sage flowers. Maybe this will give her a bit of closure. If we do this thing right, perhaps she'll come back into this world for a while, at least begin to speak. Her perpetually wounded presence had grown devastating to him, a brute silence that caused clocks to thump forward like slow blows to a body bag. One gasp could morph into a wail of a tormented prisoner. Please talk to me, Maggie. Say, Daddy, just one more time. Save me. You hold the flashlight, Pete said. Maggie obediently stepped back, leaving her father, the bagged goldfish, and the small shovel trapped in a frail, wavering beam. Further away, the night slammed down hard like the lid of a coffin. Pete dug, tossed a bit of dirt, dug deeper. Think nice things, sweetie, he said. Think about your goldfish going to be with Mummy and Uncle Jack in heaven. He scooped, tossed, scooped, and tossed. But then the shovel clanked a bit, slid to the right, and after brief resistance crunched through something. Pete's skin writhed. He knew this had turned bad, could sense that even before the sickly sweet odor assailed his nostrils. An insect distracted Maggie. She looked down and away. The beam of her flashlight crawled across the ground to reveal the face and shallow grave of a young woman with Latino features. Her eyes were open, lips parted slightly, mouth still dripping dirt. Reflected moonlight glinted from a cheap cross still dangling from her mottled neck. Pete jumped back. He quickly angled his body so that Maggie's view was obstructed, stuffed the baggie and fish into the dry brush, and tamped the earth back into place. He mumbled a simple prayer. Let's go back inside. Later. Something nocturnal screeched high up in the rocks. Hazy stars speckled black velvet sky. Moonlight bore down but was beaten back by harsh electric lights. The tall, slender sheriff chewed on his wet cigar butt. His face had skin tight as saddle leather. He shrugged. Don't know what to tell you. Sorry you caught such a fright, but as you can see, we dug things up pretty good. I saw her, Pete said. He still did. Something wet broke in his chest. Well, the sheriff watched his men turning out the lights, rounding up the electrical cord, the tarps and sheets of clear plastic. People see things around here. Pete hugged himself against a sudden chill. What do you mean by that? Maggie was asleep inside, Having bought his cover story that this was all about his next movie, the other lawmen tore down the yellow crime scene tape, walked back to the trucks, as if more than a little pissed off. What do you mean, Sheriff? People see things. Just that, the Sheriff said. Maybe you were right, Gwen. Maybe I have been steadily losing it. Look, you believed me when I called. Sure did. You see that flat area behind you goes off into the scrub? That fairly loose dirt? Wets get found there from time to time. Wets? Pete thought he'd understood, knew the history of this area, and spoke a bit of Spanish. He just wanted to be sure. Wetbacks coming across, looking for work, the sheriff said. You go a bit higher up in the arroyo, you'll find clumps of old running shoes, empty water bottles, torn clothes. If you search and dig, more than a handful of bones. Wets. A lot of them just die of thirst, some get themselves murdered by coyotes. And I don't mean the critter. No, Pete said, the outlaws that bring them across. Yep, those bastards. They're called coyotes, men that take money in exchange for a little hope. A few get them just about to or over the border, cut their throats or gun them down for the money and property. See, turns out some people just too damn lazy and dishonest to bother doing their jobs. Sounds pretty awful. You don't know the half of it, mister. What it's like to really find not one, but maybe a dirt field full of dead folks who just wanted a decent wage. The sheriff looked up at the merciless stars. He spat and turned to go. Anyway, don't surprise me at all. People see a ghost around here now and then. The cars drove away with a spray of sand and the rattle of pebbles and stone. The little clearing fell silent. Pete stared into the gloom at that one patch of ground. He imagined the desperate terror of a young woman's final moments, thought he heard a frail moan and a rattle of earth and pebbles on skin. Thought about Maggie, his miserable life. Damn, I hate you, Gwen. He shivered and went back into the trailer for a strong drink. Maggie was tucked in but restless, So Pete worked on the screenplay for a while, but he was pretty wiped out. His heart wasn't in it. The trailer felt claustrophobic, but he was afraid to go back outside. When he peered out the window, the now unclean sand seemed to have been sketched with shadows wearing campesino white and faded straw hats. And among the boulders, he saw beautiful young women with wet brown eyes and braided black hair. Enough. Pete had enough video, digital photographs, and had taken copious notes. It was time to leave. They'd drive back to the set at first light. Suddenly Maggie sat partway up, stiffened. Her lips moved, and for one suspended moment Pete thought she would speak to him from the depths of a bad dream. But then she slumped back down on the bed. Her eyes remained closed. Outside, in the night, a mournful wailing filled the hills as real coyotes honored a full-blood moon. Pete watched, heart aching with sadness for his daughter's suffering. The familiar hatred returned. Fuck you, Gwen, just fuck you for leaving us both. He sipped some scotch, then dropped the glass on the carpet. Maggie's chest was still as stone. She was not breathing. Honey? Honey? Pete rushed to her side, his heart thudding, tried CPR, entered an almost comic state, trying to both reach for the cell phone and continue to push and blow, wondered in the back of his mind if the law would come again or simply consider him insane this time and thus allow this sweet little girl to die. He had punched in nine and then one when she grunted and her eyes popped open. Her skin was pale as a church candle. She looked like an antique doll at a garage sale. Maggie moved her lips, tried to speak, caught his eyes and held them tight like someone slipping from the ledge of a tall building. Christ, she was going to talk. Thank you, God, Pete wept. Oh, baby, I'm so sorry, but Mommy isn't here. Mommy is gone. The little girl struggled, kept trying to speak. Suddenly, the trailer grew unbearably cold and unnaturally still. Hope soured and rapidly turned to dread. Pete felt sanity slip away. Mama? The girl cried out in a flawless Spanish accent, face twisted, eyes abruptly flat and dead. Then she laughed high and shrill, "Mam mia mandato, mother, Mother sent me to find you. Twas not death for I stood up. And all the dead lie down. Emily Dickinson
2: That was Harry Shannon's And All the Dead Lie Down, read by Matt Selznick. I was trying to visit Matt's website to make sure what we've got about him is current, but the link we had was not really working that well over the couple days that I tried it. The website told me that people from my country had ruined it for everyone, and now everyone was blocked. So... Sounds like America's cut off from seeing Mr. Selznick's page, but here's what we've got. (laughs) Matt is an author and creator living in Long Beach, California. He's a creative services provider and helps creators, companies, and agencies bring creative endeavors to fruition, to market, and to an audience. He writes novels, short stories, and serials, and is known for his world building. Thank you, Matt. Next up will be Jeff Carlson's Pattern Masters. Jeff Carlson was born on the day of the first man moon landing and narrowly escaped being named Apollo, Armstrong, or Rocket. His father worked for NASA Ames at the time. His granddad on his mother's side was a sci-fi fan whose library included autographed copies of Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy. Guess what they talked about? Big ideas and small brains sometimes lead in unique directions. Although active in his youth in soccer and baseball, Jeff also spent a lot of time reading Frank Baum, James Michener, Gene M. R. L., Stephen King, John Irving, Wendy Peeney, John Varley, and Joe Haldman. In real life, Jeff has also worked in construction and in credit investigation. Most recently, he is a house dad writer guy, spending a lot of time with the uncanny X-Men Ben 10 and Warriors as well as stealing rare minutes with the work of writers like Jonathan Mayberry and Robert Krauss, while finding room for his seventh novel, an eighth novel in collaboration with David Brin, skiing, backpacking, NFL Game South Park, Jethro Tull, and sushi and a movie dates with his wife. Jeff's first novel, high concept thriller Plague Year, sold to Ace Penguin USA after a small bidding war between two publishers and strong interest from a third. Plague Year hit stores everywhere in mass-market paperback in August 2007. The book immediately went to a second printing, a third, a fourth, all the way through eight editions. Audio rights sold to Recorded Books and Audible.com, who released Plague Year as narrated by stage actor Richard Ferrone. There was a film option since expired and several foreign rights deals. In 2014, Jeff released a sequel to The Frozen Sky entitled Betrayed. His collaboration with David Brin is the first of a new adventure series entitled Colony High, with at least two more books already outlined. Jeff also writes parenting articles and has a nonfiction book proposal in the works as well, as a collection of humor and how-to essays about life in the trenches as a house dad. And now, Jeff Carlson's Pattern Masters.
5: Sorber wasn't crazy. He'd planned on never hitting the same place twice, he even kept a checklist near the toilet, in case it needed to be destroyed in a hurry. But 209 days crawled past before he'd bagged every store in Berkeley and Oakland, so it seemed impossible that anyone would remember him at the Greenwalds, his favourite, his first. The sobber was at the register before the girl stopped him. ''Those are mine,'' she said, reaching out. He held the packet against his chest. ''What?'' ''Look at the label.'' Of course, he'd already studied it carefully. 36 exposures, regular 35 millimeter film, Jennifer Crisp. The address, written in delicate cursive, was just two blocks from here. Adrenaline spilled from his veins into his gut. The girl was half his age, pleasant-faced, her nose like a ski jump. Yet her breasts were perfect, small and neat, her white bra outlined against her thin white blouse. At five, nine or ten, she had at least an inch on him and maybe ten pounds. Sorber made a show of examining the packet with a smile. Right, geez, these all look the same. He practised the words so many times that he managed to sound bored. It still wasn't convincing. The green envelopes were exactly the same except for the personal information which each customer jotted down. The girl's fingers closed on the packet. Sorber knew he should let go, "'let go and stop grinning like a chimpanzee, "'but her skin was smooth, wonderful. "'She wore more rings than he could count in a glance. "'She smiled back at him and said, "'You sure would have been surprised when you got home.' "'Zorba's eyes lifted towards the security cameras. "'What were the odds that he had pulled this packet from the wide drawers "'just as its owner arrived? "'One in a thousand? Higher. "'Given the vagaries of timing, much higher.' he wasn't crazy he'd been set up the photo department at greenwalls was tiny crushed in the back between two rows of overpriced groceries and the bright gigantic counters of the pharmacy he'd shopped here before scouting the place and knew that his quickest exit was through the rear but were the stockroom doors unlocked don't worry about it the girl said as the heavy-set photo clerk stepped out from behind the register the man's eyes were lost under weary dark brows sorba turned to run her grip was unbelievably strong the two of them fumbled the packet and it careered off the back of sorba's calf as he spun away the sharp-cornered impact felt like a knife he hit a rack of disposable cameras with his shoulder kicked through the avalanche of small yellow boxes fell got up slammed into a swinging door in the dim confusing maze of the stockroom two men shouted at him He reached daylight sooner than he'd hoped, scrambling under a giant truck and around a corner before he stopped to look and listen. Four blocks over, he thought he saw the girl again behind the wheel of a dented VW Bug. The sprawling Cal Berkeley campus was Sorba's second favourite place in the world. A sea of loud young voices, firm bodies, their hairstyles and ridiculous piercings, lips, noses. Once he'd seen a forehead ring. Always made him smile. It was a safe, colourful environment where anonymity was the rule. Today it seemed like the kids weren't ignoring him. Black grease from beneath the truck coated his butt and both knees, and his thoughts very loud. He kept his head down and his feet moving, but avoided the shortcut behind the clock tower. The thought of the narrow alley made him edgy. Sorber had always planned on bluffing his way out of a confrontation, causing a scene would only make him more memorable. All he had to do was apologise and then realise that he'd tried the new digital service. The one that Greenwald sent out for an extra day. And presto kazam, he was just another moron you might joke about with your husband over dinner. He panicked. His streak of bad luck wasn't letting up and he'd gone stupid over a simple coincidence. If the police did know about him, they wouldn't bother with an elaborate sting operation and sexy decoys. They'd come to his apartment. Now they had his fingerprints. A description outside the science building three girls and a hairy boy stood in a ring playing hacky sack while another girl circled them crouching here and there with a pocket camera kick it up kick it up she said
1: There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.
0: Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. Only at Sleep Number stores or SleepNumber.com. Her
5: jeans were very tight. Sorba felt his anxiety lift for a moment, wishing he was that boy, imagining he had such friends. He couldn't stop now. A newspaper stood precisely on end against the door of his split level. Sorba stared. The Monte Clarion was a free publication that he'd given up on trying to have stopped yet it had never been left anywhere except in his spotty, muddy strip of grass. He hurried down and opened all four locks. The small apartment wasn't anything great. Its only real window faced right onto the street. But the entrances were fairly private and he didn't have to share it, and it had only taken two heavy tarps and a little soundproofing to transform the bedroom into a decent workshop. Sorber threw the newspaper into the trash and went to the fridge. A blink of red caught his eye. The answering machine, two blinks, Sorba hesitated, then walked to the counter. He tried to remember the last time someone had called. A salesman, his ex didn't even have his number. Then the phone rang and Sorba yanked his hand back. He took a step forward to the front door but turned and strode to the bedroom, propelled entirely by instinct. Guarding that doorway, he stared back at the phone. His heart beat so hard that it seemed to squeeze his lungs down against his stomach. The machine still had Deb's tired voice. Hi, nobody's here. You know what to do? Silence poured out the speaker into his home. He heard a faint scuffing like somebody shifting from one foot to another. He didn't move. The caller hung up. When he ventured forward to hit the play button, the first two messages were the same expectant, quiet, someone listening. The workshop was an awful mess that he'd planned on cleaning this afternoon but he was restless, nerdy and he still needed at least one more score. He grabbed a different jacket and a niner's cap tucking his hair up to further change his appearance remembering clean pants at the last minute. He had that bad sensation of suffocating again as he stood outside his front door triple-checking the locks but nothing happened, no one approached nobody's watching you, he thought the congestion downtown was comforting. Beggars, skate-punks, businessmen. He became invisible. He caught glimpses of different lines through the windows and sliding-glass doors of the university dorms. A hideous red-leather couch, the smell of grilled cheese, a bare-shouldered woman singing under the turbine roar of a blow-dryer was his favourite, and the soriety house. Zero progress had been made on the steel patio fence that they'd been building since July. Long's drugs seemed deserted and his feet clicked loudly against the gleaming tile floor. He fingered through the D's and the E's until a row of flower heads drawn across the top of the packet caught his eye. Amy Ellison, an off-campus address. Roughly one in thirty people got impatient with alphabetical groupings and marked their packets outside the space provided to make theirs more noticeable. Stars, looping circles, jagged black scribbles... He found these choices very revealing. Sauber splurged on some candy bars and paid cash. If he got lucky, this one might be the end of it. In the parking lot, the girl from Greenwald stood waiting against her dented VW, arms folded, a smile tucked into the corner of her mouth. Sauber was so surprised that he walked straight over, awash in a perverse sense of relief. Someone has been watching me. The only question that occurred to him was so intriguing he almost shouted, "'What are you?' doing? "'What are you?' she countered. "'All these pictures.' Her eyes were blue-green, very sharp, and her eyebrows had that same razor quality, thin and perfect. One of her incisors was half gone, chipped off. A tomboy. How much did she know? "'I'm Nina,' the girl said. "'The man on the packet was Jennifer. "'It wasn't mine. "'I was just trying to start a conversation.' Sorba hoped his smile looked right. "'So what's the secret?' she asked. "'She had a habit of shaking her head to one side "'when she finished speaking, that he liked. "'She was rude, confident, crazy. "'I'll show you,' he said. "'He got her inside because she moved the same way that she talked, "'without hesitation, not getting into her tiny car with him, "'not parking on the dark street, not at his front door. "'She finally wavered in the doorway to his bedroom.' The toes of one shoe, crackling on the heavy tarp, laid over the carpet. He worried that it smelled funny. He worried that he couldn't see a face. He should have cleaned. Jesus, she said. He came up behind her. Who else knows about me? This is amazing. In most ways, the sculpture was a departure for him. Deb probably wouldn't have recognised it as his. The work was too busy, too bright, too anthropocentric. The base structure conformed to a human shape, his own. He imagined telling interviewers, because he hadn't wanted the piece to overwhelm with sheer bulk. It also had to fit through the door. Yet its very surface was flat, aside from a concave dish where the face should be, and oversized dish. None of the proportions were correct. The left biceps squashed into a pyramid, one hip no more than a dangling cube. "'the fingers of the right hand represented by flat ten-inch strips. "'The man's shape appeared to run or jump or perhaps just swoon, perhaps all three. "'It depended on where you stood and what was visible of its skin.' "'Nina stepped forward in a rush and paced through snippings. "'Cans, power tools, the man shape danced with her. "'She said, "'This is absolutely amazing. You'll be famous.' "'Deb had always promised the same. Poor Deb.' Small and large, cropped or whole, colour black and white, at first the hundreds of images shotgunned the mind. Then the eye found a place to rest, and then patterns emerged. Nina paused as a particular grouping caught her, the right shoulder. Sorba nodded to himself. The skin there consisted of healthy young men, some shirtless, one nude, many playing to the camera. Along the arm were tuxedos and brides, homes, children. Further down the ribcage, the young men merged abruptly with a series of infirm seniors, bold, baggy, and still monkeying for the camera, gumming pizza, fencing with canes. The skin was full of such contrasts, ghettos and pristine deserts, parties and intensive care units. It was illuminating and magical, and at the same time utterly horrific, It drew his eye away from her. He'd lived with this tapestry of stolen lies for eight months now, longer than any other work, and still it had the ability to make him forget himself. Sorba moved close, just as Nina brushed one fingertip over the mosaic. She pulled back, eyes wide. Sorry. He slapped its jaw. Indestructible. The base structure was concrete mixed with epoxy, the sort of thing to use as a shield against a nuclear blast and he triple laminated the skin and planned to hit it twice more when he finished. Sawbear had yet to skin the right calf of the great empty dish of a face, although he'd contemplated leaving that concave blank, hungry, groping. Or maybe that was just too obvious. He'd already thrown in several conspicuous jokes, a life-sized ear precisely where it should be, drunkards mooning the camera on the rump, such liberalism gave idiots something to understand and in sob's experience it was crucial to market to numb-ass television zombies who wouldn't recognise their own existence without having their hands held there were more of them than anyone else after all therefore they had most of the money and their choices skewed everything he wouldn't be using his own bedroom as a studio and surviving on credit cards if he'd done a better job of commercialising himself when he still had grants and a wife and free warehouse space provided by the university. "'It's almost filled in,' Nina said, caressing the back of the right calf. "'Will you use a picture of me?' Someone would surely object to his placing a group of young women way down on the leg when the young men graced the shoulder, no matter that the space in between was filled perfectly with themes of age, professions, shots of guys, shopping and girls watching sports.' This was Berkeley, after all, so packed with liberal faces that during the Vietnam War, city leaders had actually proposed seceding from the United States of America. Someone would cry sexism and sorber dreamed of protest, media frenzies. He wasn't stupid. He'd learnt that talent wasn't enough to sell, and controversy was publicity. He might even get national coverage after people started recognizing themselves in the skin and filing lawsuits. Please. Nina said. I'm better than anything in here. She lifted a Greenwald's photo packet from her purse. 36 exposures, regular 35mm film, Jennifer Crisp. She'd stolen it herself. Sorba reached for the packet automatically and Nina flashed her chipped tooth at him and laughed. They spread other lives across his kitchen counter, their fingers bumping together again and again. Warm, eager. That one's ridiculous, she said. Throw it out. You won't find a camera owner in the world who doesn't line up their friends and tell them to smile. In a parking lot? Jesus. But don't you see what's happening? The blonde's always in the middle and the fat one's on the end again. There's a whole series here. Boring. Throw it out. Ooh, look at all that sushi. The colours are... Come on, these Barbies don't have any imagination. They're just posing again. We've got a bad batch. Jesus. Now this lady needs help. Are you kidding? I love this shot. It's of a wall. The camera must have gone off by accident. There isn't space for it anyway. Sorbet didn't object when Nina swept both sets of pictures into the garbage in great, messy handfuls. He liked the way that she pinballed through her decisions. Typically, he'd brood over shots for days, even those he knew he wouldn't use, gleaning clues and patterns, groping his way into different realities. She clapped her hands together. "'It must have taken forever to get all those pictures you needed.' "'He shrugged and nodded. "'I can show you whole libraries of stuff. "'Edgy, weird. We'll download whatever you want.' "'Download?' "'She flashed that tooth again. "'Parking in a neighbourhood was impossible. "'Nina beat her hand on the steering wheel impatiently "'and Sorby hid a smile as they glided up the street and down again. "'Even in low gear they moved faster than he could walk, "'allowing time for the fleeting impressions.' It made him drunk. The Berkeley Hills were thickly populated and the steep lots demanded unusual architecture. Houses with the rooms lined up like cars, tiny yards on top of jutting roofs. Her place reeked of candle wax and incense. A tiny attic studio at the same level as the uphill street. Her kitchenette looked directly out onto the tyres of parked cars. Sorba loved it. He imagined eating breakfast at the window... "'watching shoes match up with vehicles as each morning's commute began. "'City maps covered the short walls. "'The same map, Berkeley. "'He stepped around her rumbled bed for a closer look "'as she booted up a shiny new tangerine iMac in the corner. "'Tangled, angled, lines had been sketched in a rainbow of colours "'across the black and white grids. "'What's all this, then?' he asked. "'The big one by my window is you.' Nina Chavez had worked in credit fraud protection for less than a week before she grew obsessed. "'Look,' she said, pogo-sticking an index finger across the city. "'This guy's so anal that he'll skip the gas station "'right next door to his house "'and drive all the way to town looking for a deal, "'even though he must spend twice what he saves "'just cruising around. "'Same with groceries. "'Same with his dry cleaning. "'Almost never the same place twice.' "'Wow, neat, Okay. They started at the hectic patterns and finally Sorba had to touch the map, fill the man's days. Nina made a low sound in her throat, cat-like, pleased. He turned and saw that her lower lip hung open one slight, inviting fraction. Her eyes shifted towards his. Sorba looked away, but he caught maybe her gaze had flickened down to his mouth too. He said, ''What about this guy? He's just two big blots.'' "'Electronics freak!' her tone was boasting. "'Always in the same couple of shops. "'Probably uses cash for everyday stuff. "'I'm sure he doesn't have any other cards. "'We barely approved him, and he's already at the edge. "'Minimum payments, always late.' "'And me?' "'She held his eyes, not smiling. "'She smiled terrific. "'Like mango,' he guessed. "'You're in a world of hurt,' she said. "'I've written off almost three grand for you as merchant error "'or duplication in the last two months.' "'Otherwise you would be maxed.' "'Sawber had to sit down. "'There were a few big purchases he'd kept waiting to pay for, "'but he thought he didn't know what he thought. "'Deb was the math wizard. "'The idea of losing the very last of his possessions, "'his tools, the sculpture, no. "'He would become a thief before selling off what remained of his soul. "'The realisation made him glad and sick. Two or three robberies a month might be enough, "'and he knew dozens of stores intimately now.' Nina perched on the end of the bed beside him, intent on his face. But he was afraid to let her see his eyes. He was afraid of what her reaction might show. The bundled sheets were ripe with her scent, worn soft. He snuck his fingers deep into their folds. It's okay," she said. I can buy you more time. They stood shoulder to shoulder by the filthy window examining his map. The trails he'd established weren't as curiously random as the penny pinchers... Or as compulsive as those left by the electronic streak, or those of a woman Nina called the porn queen. But nevertheless, his pattern had intrigued her. It shrieked of desperation. Most people didn't use credit cards for eleven dollars at the grocery store every other day, much less for a buck seventy-five at Pete's Coffee. He had also drawn big cash advances at the end of the past two months. She assumed for rent, and he was constantly visiting hardware stores and craft shops. I had to know what you were doing, she said. Like the others, his maps bore a tiny label at the bottom. Nina's handwriting was all sweeping jags and flares. Timothy J. Sauber, thirty-eight, one 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 three c Bishop Drive, Teacher, Salary Range, 19,750-23,000. to Resentment crept through him as he understood that 10,000 computers and clerks had been pigeonholed. He'd never thought of himself as an instructor. It was just a job, a trade-off for studio space and a paycheck. Yet Unseen Armies considered this a vital definition of his being. Nina bumped his hip with her own. You think I'm nuts? I think your maps are great. Her maps are alien. I think we see things most people don't. She made that low sound again. Hmm. That night and the next were ideal. Sorba wished someone could take a picture. Nina sat cross-legged or happily lay belly down on the floor, shuffling her maps and coloured pens and printouts she'd stolen from work. He typed carefully at her computer. Sometimes she got up and stood beside him, sharing. Sometimes she laid a hand on his shoulder. The first sights and galleries suggested seemed to lack authenticity. The scenes were too spectacular. Sleek girls, painted by dance lights... A skier cutting through sprays of powder, but he was captivated by the promise of wealth. They chuckled together over morons posing with their pets, even fish tanks, and took turns reading aloud from personal web pages. Entire families were on display, labelled, often with short bios, and home addresses. That's crazy, Sorba said. He got excited over a poorly lit shot of an all-girl garage band fronted by a heavy teen in a wheelchair. Nina showed him how to download files to use her printer. How much does this special paper cost, he asked. But she just shook her head. He caught her smiling at him six times. When she was in the bathroom, he smiled her bed again and felt the inside of her jacket. He never wanted to leave this quiet oddly shaped apartment but he was gentlemanly before ten o'clock he excused himself nina held out a key i love watching you work she said but i'm at my job all day you shouldn't have to wait the damp fog and cold did nothing to quell his exploding mind he would have said i love you too but it was too soon striding down the hill seemed effortless and inspiration struck him as he passed a jam-packed mailbox he stuffed his pockets with everything that wasn't obviously a bill or advertising. The night was full of lightened windows like big TV screens, all tuned to the family dramas. When he got home, his answering machine had two messages, only silence again. He smiled to think that she didn't know what to say either. He wanted to have called back, but he wanted to keep the stolen mail a surprise until he could see her face. Nina seemed to purr. "'humming, growling, as she marked one of her maps "'to show the five addresses where he'd taken mail. "'She could not sit still, bumping his side, "'throwing herself on her stomach, climbing back onto her knees. "'Sauber's eyes rarely left the hem of her skirt. "'Listen,' she kept saying, "'listen to this, smoothing out personal letters "'and waving a postcard from Washington, D.C. "'Every phrase was wonderfully mundane.' Finally, her energy carried her to the door. How about some take-out Chinese, she said. I'm buying. And as they exited her building, she took his hand like a little girl, smiling, tugging him up the hill to her car. She sped by an open space right across from the restaurant and pulled into a dark lot. She turned off the engine. Sauber took off his seat belt, but paused with his fingers on the door when Nina's touched his other hand. Wait, she gazed at the busy street random pedestrians, a pack of 13-year-olds smoking cigarettes under the brilliant lights of a corner store. She brought his hand to her sculpted leg. Together they pushed her skirt up to the mid thigh She parted her knees. Nina was loud, maybe deliberately. Twice people on the sidewalk looked around as she ground down on him. Her face turned to the window. Beneath her skirt, their skin overheated like putty, but his scalp felt chilled. His feet, his gut, He was so distracted that he didn't finish until she'd exhausted herself and slumped against him. His release was abrupt, an afterthought. She laughed against his neck and buried him in her hair. When she came home on the fifth night, he had a pot of canned ravioli waiting, but Nina ignored it, pouring through the stacks of paper by a printer. "'What the hell is this?' she said. "'Read the parts I marked. It's really incredible.' You spend all day in a chat room? Yeah, it's almost like watching people. Boring. All they do is complain. He gave me an idea for a new piece. He dripped sauce on the stovetop, gesturing, and she started to say something, but he couldn't stop. Imagine an American flag constructed out of special computer monitors. Ticker tapes, maybe. One stripe would be these anti-government looms. And the next would be... I can't cover for you forever. What happens when you're out of money? You'll be on the street. I'm almost done. I have enough pictures now. Give me your key. Get out of here. Go finish it so you have something to sell. Otherwise you're dead meat. But he couldn't stray away. Not because of the sex or her wicked smile. Because of her computer or, as Deb would insist, because he was subconsciously delaying the bleak and tiresome process of marketing himself to yups and straights. No artist enjoys explaining why beauty is beautiful, pimping for $12,000 civic improvement awards, wasting days hoping to impress gallery managers with overcrowded schedules. He couldn't stay away because of all these things. Sorba got spooked about the mailboxes he'd ransacked and hiked around the long way, approaching a house from up the hill. He wondered how many passerbyers were tempted to crouch down and peer through her kitchen window. He wondered how long Nina had been two-timing him with the chubby guy assembling radio equipment on her desk, the electronics freak from Map 6. Just a week before, Sorba probably would have left, let it end, turtle deep into his work. But Nina had made him bold. He eased up the narrow, creaking stairs to her attic, taking the steps in random batches of three and two, "'waiting for noise from other apartments, "'the rattle of plumbing, television, laughter. "'Initially he thought Nina had several men in a place, "'thought disgusting things. "'Then a shriek of static made him realise "'that, of course, the voices were radio broadcasts. "'She was loud. Try that one. "'No, no, no, go back, like a kid with a new toy.' "'Sawber considered ways to win her again. "'Then she said, "'How about some takeout for dinner? "'I know the perfect place.' He must have slept some time that night because he dreamed he was back in her cramped stairwell. With the logic of nightmares, he pushed her after he had already fallen and they lay together in a shattered heap, the chubby guy reassembling them incorrectly. Sorba made the call the next evening, waiting for Nina to pick up. He finally realised that it wasn't her who'd left those silent searching messages. The chubby guy knew where he lived He was sick with jelly-hard blood when she answered. He wanted no part of a grudge war. He wanted out. It's done, he said. I thought you should see it first. The upstairs neighbour always banged when Sorba used his power tools and sometimes the people next door on the wall so hard that he imagined they'd break through. He was pretty sure everyone was home from work when Nina arrived. It was after seven, so he began shouting as soon as he'd locked the door behind her. "'You whore! You little whore! Who else is part of your harem?' Nina walked directly to his sculpture, which stood now in the middle of the living room. She turned and stared. But someone next door was quick to thump on the wall, and suddenly she was yelling too. Her small hands shrunk into smaller fists. "'I saved you! You don't! Who else knows about? You don't have a chance without me!' She advanced on him, aggressive as always, chin-ups, legs scissoring beneath her skirt. She probably figured that if she twitched her lips for another ten seconds, he'd mount her right there, against the kitchen counter, while the neighbours listened. But Sauber had carefully placed his electric saw on the shelving alongside the door. Nina froze when he grabbed it, and then her arms lifted out from her sides like a woman on a tightrope. She made a noise like a word. Nah! She screamed over the high whine of the saw, lurching back as he jumped after her with the churning blade held up between them. Just to destroy her composure was intensely gratifying. He laughed and she screamed again and he thought he heard his neighbours panicking somewhere beyond Nina's voice and the snarl of the saw as he pressed it down for the upholstery and wood frame of his couch. It couldn't last, of course, this chance to master her. He hurried when he wanted to dally, beyond excitement, near hysteria, adding his shrieks to hers. Too soon, there were sirens outside, and the first shout at his door was a woman's: "Police, open up!" He held them off until the media arrived. Sixty more minutes, cramming his hand over his grasping laughter. Now, the cops wouldn't seem to negotiate. W- the cops couldn't seem to negotiate without hollering, since there was a door between them and a terrific circus outside, as residents evacuated and news vans jammed the street. Sorba was too familiar with confusion and fear to have difficulty pretending. "'What are you doing?' he yelled back. "'What are you doing?' "'Sir, sir, just open up.' He had allowed Nina to circle around him as the sirens approached, and she had clawed at the door hard enough to leave one fingernail on the carpet before escaping, and if he was lucky that would be the last he ever saw of her. His landlord would be furious, yet Sorber had been careful to damage only his own furniture, and eviction proceedings in rent a friendly Berkeley moved with all the speed of a drowned worm. A charge of disturbing the peace was probably the worst he'd face. Nina wouldn't press charges. Assault with a deadly weapon, whatever, because she had too much to hide. Even if they stood him in front of a judge for obstructing a police officer or resisting arrest, he had no record. They couldn't jail him. He only hoped that Nina never understood his true intent, because he didn't think he could outsmart her twice. Soon enough, she might suspect, unfortunately, if everything worked out right. If it was a slow night, local news footage of his sculpture might get 30 seconds or more in a million homes across the Bay Area. And it was exactly that kind of notoriety that started bidding wars. Sober wasn't crazy
2: that was Jeff Carlson's Pattern Masters as read to us by Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan Taylor is a musician born in Warwick and operating in the UK. He also is an author. linked to his musical and literary creations will be in the show notes. And that will be our show for the evening children of the night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify.